Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is the fifth and apparently final film starring Harrison Ford as everyone's favorite globe-trotting, whip-cracking, Nazi-punching archaeologist. Ford was 79 years old during the shooting of the film, which finds Indy on the cusp of retirement when he's forced to chase an ancient artifact around the world to keep it from falling into the wrong hands. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is Kristen Meinzer. She co-hosts the podcast, The Daily Fail, and she's the co-author of How to Be Fine. Welcome back, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me back. Always good to have you. Also with us is writer and host of the imminent Smithsonian Magazine podcast. There's more to that. Chris Klimek. Hey, pal. As my knee surgeon likes to say to me, Glenn, it's not the years, it's the mileage. There you go. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny begins with a prologue that finds a digitally de-aged Harrison Ford playing Indy in 1944, facing off against Mad Mickelson's Nazi scientist Dr. Jürgen Vola. We then jump ahead to 1969 Manhattan, and he's about to retire from his gig as an archaeology professor when his goddaughter Helena, Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridge, shows up looking for an ancient device, specifically one half of the Archimedes dial, which is rumored to act as a kind of time compass, but only if its other half can be found. You see where this is going. She's not the only one looking for the dial, of course. Indy's old nemesis, Dr. Voller, is now working for the U.S. space program and will stop at nothing to get his hands on it. Soon enough, Indy dons his fedora and grabs his whip and sets off on a classic quest to find the rest of the dial, decipher its codes, and keep the Nazis from using it to do evil Nazi stuff. There's lots of chase scenes and fight scenes and narrow escapes and gorgeous locations, but this time out is Indy's last time out. Both the actor and the character seem a little worse for wear. This is the first Indiana Jones film not directed by Steven Spielberg. It's directed by James Mangold, who made Logan and Ford v. Ferrari. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is in theaters now. Kristen, let me start with you. What'd you make of it? I loved this movie. There we go. You know when people say, I stood up and cheered, but they're Uh actually speaking kind of like metaphorically? I literally did that. I began cheering, squealing with delight, gasping, clapping within a few minutes of the lights going down, and I did not stop until it ended. This movie was so fun. It had all the indie greatest hits moments that you already mentioned, you know, the chases across the tops of trains, the -hmm. punching of Nazis, Mm -hmm. you know, a street urchin who might be smarter than you think, and Uh a bit of a sense of humor and just so much fun. And I also just have to say, de-aged version of Harrison Ford, which I was skeptical about, I thought worked totally fine at the beginning of the movie. I was scared of it, but it was just fine. I loved this movie from start to finish. Yeah, it's getting better and better, that de-aging technology. He looked great. Chris, what would you think? Yeah, I, I am uh, overwhelmingly pro on this. Mm-hmm. I'll uh, annotate my tiny, tiny, tiny quibbles. I love how this opens. Uh, Indy gets a truly heroic entrance. Of, you know, We've seen that, that trailer shot for a year of euthanized Harrison Ford with his, that's Y-O-U-T-H-anized. And he gets a terrific opening line. You've got some nice stuff, other people's stuff. And you do get that, like, that is clearly a 79-year-old man's voice coming out of this 40-year-old face. Sure. Didn't bother me. What did bother me a little bit is the contrast between the train set piece that follows and the train 
set piece prologue to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, mm-hmm. you know, from 1989, which just really calls out the differences, not so much between these two directors, because I do think James Mangold is a, is a worthy successor to Spielberg and a, and a great choice for this, but just the way that the technology is making of making these films has, has changed in, in 35 years. Even in a film like this, where there was a lot of location work, still a heavy reliance on green screen, on sure. digital imagery. The trio of Indiana Jones films from the 80s were were kind of anachronistic even for that period. But obviously, this is the decade before digital effects become very advanced and, and prevalent. And with, uh, you know, for example, Mission Impossible going back hard to this analog, practical, dangerous approach to doing stunts, I was kind of hoping for a bit more of that texture here, even allowing for the fact that we have a 79-year-old star. Mm-hmm. So I was a little disappointed in that aspect, but emotionally, just right, just right. This is a stirring, satisfying send-off. This has been a bit of an ongoing trend now, going back to uh, like The Force Awakens and especially Blade Runner 2049, which you and I both liked very much, where Harrison Ford, who once seemed very ambivalent about revisiting these larger-than-life characters that made him a movie star in the first place, really seems to have made his peace with it. You know, he seems happy to be here. This is a a really lived-in, human-scale, kind of mournful performance that really made this land for me. So on the whole, I felt well-served by this. Yes. He seems happy to be here in a way that I know we all want to forget about it, but I just have to remind people there was a movie called Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yes, there was. I'm not familiar. is part of this whole Indiana Jones universe that I like to forget about. Most of us do. He didn't seem happy to be in the movie, I have to say, (laughs) that time around. And I would not have been happy to be in that movie either. So I agree with you, Chris. He does seem happy to be in this movie, and he's just a delight in it. Yeah. The question this film asks implicitly is, why do I exist? (laughs) Why? The mission statement of this film does justify its existence, because it seems to me the mission statement of this film is to look at a character at a point in his life when the thing that really distinguished him from other 80s action heroes, his vulnerability, has now come to define the character. And I know, Chris, you're going to say, oh, John McClane was vulnerable. John McClane was a wise-ass. Like, that was his power. That insulated him. Dirty Harry was macho. The Terminator was a bicep, walking bicep. And Rambo had rage. But Indy was always vulnerable human. He emotes big. When we meet in Razors for the first time, we see him, you know, thinking about the weight of the gold idol. And then he's reacting to the boulder and the locals and the snakes with real fear on his face, you know, and he avoids a fair fight if he can. He cheats. So what would that character look like as he's pushing 80? That's why the first time we see him in the 1969, he is shirtless. He's in a recliner. He's got an empty whiskey glass in his hand. And it's really about a man obsessed with his past, with the past, When everybody in the world around him is imagining the future. That's why they said it in 1969 during a parade welcoming the Apollo 11 astronauts back. I thought that was a really interesting thing to peg a movie on. Interesting enough to justify this film's presence. Yeah, and to get the guy who made Copland and Logan, uh, and also uh, Mangold's remake of 310 to Yuma from 2007, I think those three films in particular, even though he's made a lot of other good ones, are kind of a perfect prerequisite to do the final chapter of Indy. That shirtless shot was kind of a flex, not for the usual reasons. I mean, yes, this is a very fit and hale and hearty 79-year-old, but I felt like the purpose (laughs) of that shot was not look at my glistening chest. It's like, sure, I'm not the guy you remember. You know, re- remember mm-hmm. how I had my shirt off for half of Temple of Doom? 
I don't look like that anymore. And I, I really appreciated that. I mean, that that uh, sort of selective vulnerability, I guess, you know, that is kind of its own kind of movie star vanity in a way. But I mean, it is a vanity that serves the audience. I really appreciated that. And I, I thought that using that shot to signal the passage of 25 years from 1944 to 1969 was really smart. I also just, as far as the past versus the future, which is something that I, I don't want to spoil things here, but mm-hmm. it is a question that weighs heavily on Indiana Jones at a certain point in the movie where he has to make some tough decisions about the past versus the present versus the future and so on. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was really beautiful, the vulnerability that you speak of, Glenn, coming out in that moment. You know, those of us in the audience might look at Indiana Jones and think, oh my gosh, you are swashbuckling, you are handsome, you're accomplished, you are an internationally renowned professor, you're essentially an action star slash superhero. And you also look back at the past, not just the past historically, but your own past, and you sometimes wish you would have done things differently. You, somebody who's a superhero to us all, you sometimes have regrets too. And I have to say, as somebody sitting in the audience watching somebody who's larger than life also grapple with these questions and then also try to come to a place of peace or be forced to come to a place of peace with all of that, I thought that was beautifully done. Yeah, he screws up. That's what kind of sets him apart, I think. And he looks to the past. We also, as we are in the theater, we are looking to the past, too, because I was in the theater and I was liking this film fine. I wasn't feeling it per se. And Chris knows this, but a chase scene is never going to get my blood pumping. I'm just not built that way. Um, even, and these in movies are, <laughs> even in a tuk-tuk? Even in a tuk-tuk, Kristen. I mean, all these movies are, are chase scenes interrupted by occasional talking. But that wasn't it. I wasn't feeling bored. I was feeling yeah. something akin to anxiety. I was out of sorts, right? I was mm. at sixes and sevens. I couldn't quite... Something was off. Something was missing. Then we see a plane. Then we see a superimposed map with a dot on it. I knew it. Then we see a plane flying... We see the dot turn into a line that goes to another dot on the map, and the John Williams score swells, Mm -hmm. and the feeling. I got the (laughs) instant relaxation. It was pharmaceutical grade, and I was like, wow, I am not comfortable with the power that nostalgia has over me, over my physical body. I found it troubling because I'm going to be chasing that dragon for a while. Well, let's talk about nostalgia here. I mean, I think this franchise has an interesting relationship to that because it started out as an homage to films of decades earlier. This is what's what's really ironic about this new film to me. Raiders of the Lost Ark was deliberately a throwback to serials from the 30s. So it's looking back about 45 years, the same distance in time across which we are now looking back at Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, so you cannot untangle this from nostalgia, even though it's it's nostalgia for an era that much of the audience did not witness firsthand. Yeah. Now, having said that, I don't feel like the fan service stuff was overpowering here. There's, of course, it's there, it's expected, it's de rigueur, but it is sublimated to that emotional journey, to the the emphasis on uh, Indy's age and regret and, and vulnerability. So I I think it's permissible. I think it's uh, served in the correct dose. Yeah, and I also just want to add that I think the time periods you speak of, Chris, are also important to Indy's journey because Indiana in the original films is in a time where there are good guys and bad guys. And it is very clear. We all know Nazis are the bad guys. And there is no question about it. And the Nazis are still here, but it's also a very different time. It's 
the late 60s where is the government good or bad? Are neighbors good and bad? Are certain political initiatives good or bad? Are these protests for a good or a bad reason? What's happening in the world starts to feel more blurry too. So I felt like it was perfect for the story that this is where it ended in this time where good and bad is not always so clear. Right and wrong is not always so clear. And that includes Indiana Jones's decisions. Right and wrong yep. is not always so clear. Right. And speaking of bad, I mean, Mads Mikkelsen, this guy has played a cannibal. He's played a Bond villain. He's played a <laughs> yeah. Potter villain. He's played a Marvel villain. Now a Nazi. Finally a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Alexander wept for there were no worlds left to conquer. <laughs> okay. But retroactively making basically Werner von Braun a uh-huh. Nazi, that's pretty good. Right. Like yeah. that might be the best villain we've had since uh, Belloc in this, this series. I, I, I yeah, think so. And I, and I think that, that does lead me to something that I felt was a, was a little underdeveloped in this. There is a CIA agent character, Agent Mason, played sure. by Seanette Renee Wilson, who seems like she's going to be a, you know, our, our kind of Lando Calrissian, like whose side is she on? Is she, you know, because clearly she is assigned by the government to protect their prized asset, Dr. Voller, but also... She can see that he's a pretty bad guy and his henchmen are, are killing civilians. And, uh, you know, I think she knows that Indy is not the enemy. Um, and I was hoping we'd get to see that that conflict play out within her a little bit longer than it does. Again, this is a minor note of uh, discord in a film that I liked very much overall. Yeah. I also would have liked that if only just to have, you know, another woman who has a big yeah. role to play, a person of color who has a big role to play. That would have been great to see. But I felt like at a certain point, they just decided Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to be that character for all of us where we question, is she a good guy or a bad guy? Is she a helper or a herder of the cause? Yeah. I mean, let's talk about that because you cast Phoebe Waller-Bridge in in your movie. It's always a good idea. She brings charm. She brings intelligence. Did she bring anything to this particular role that only – Phoebe Waller-Bridge could bring? Or could you have slotted any other actor into that role just as easily? I personally thought she was great in this because Mm -hmm. there's something about Phoebe Waller-Bridge that has always a mix of humor and rough edges. And maybe she's a mess even when she speaks with great confidence, even when, you know, she puts a line in the sand and says, this is this. We all know that's not necessarily true about her and all of the characters Mm -hmm. she's played in the past. Sometimes she is very firmly in a position even when she knows she's wrong, when she's sabotaging others or self-sabotaging. So I think that made her good as kind of the unreliable foil to Indiana Jones because we don't always know what she's going to do. I also just thought that she was a lot of fun during the action scenes because it's not just that she's a subject sitting there waiting for things to happen to her. She's frequently active herself in these scenes. Yeah. Uh, Indy actually has a line in, in Raiders, I think, where he says, oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. You know, So, I, I mean, she really is an heir to him in, in terms of that uh, you project confidence whether or not certainty is present. Yep. The plot of this film is very chunky. We search for a thing to get the thing that leads us to the thing. It's basically Tomb Raider, but I can't complain about that because Tomb Raider was basically Raiders, you know? <laughs> so... What are you going to do? <laughs> anything about the John Williams score? It's maybe his last score, although he said it isn't. Anything? Do you have any thoughts there? I was not conscious of there being any new signature Williams themes that there were. Like like Ray got a theme in The Force Awakens that became you know quite recognizable and, and fit nicely into that long Williams canon of, of heroic film music. Uh, I didn't notice anything like that here, but I may yet because I will certainly listen to the score 
on its own, most likely. Yeah, I just found myself humming that theme song <laughs> as I walked you. out of the theater. <laughs> it is powerful. It is very powerful. <laughs> well, if you read between the lines, I think you can tell we all like this film. Tell us what you think about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what's making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Kristen Meinzer, what's making you happy this week? Well, I have been loving a new podcast called Lady Audacity. Mm-hmm. That's Lady Audacity-E-A because the hosts are all there about spilling the tea okay. on the aristocracy. It's kind of like if Lady Whistledown from Bridgerton had a podcast nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it is so fun. Their main focus is the British royals and... What I really like about the show is they don't just talk about like who wore what or who was having an affair with whom at various times in history and in the present. They also just bring in tons of context, media literacy, and a great sense of humor to their coverage, whether they're talking about, you know, Meghan Markle's podcasting career or why Princess Margaret's relationship with Peter Townsend really ended. So it's smart. It's funny. It's frothy. The hosts, Alex and Meredith, are just, they're just terrific. I have so much fun every time a new episode comes out. Again, the podcast is called Lady Audacity. That's Audacity-E-A. Thank you very much, Chris Dimaggio. That sounds like a great wreck. Chris Klimek, what is making you happy this week? Well, Glenn, as a middle-aged person who remembers when release dates were really, really important to movies, what is actually making me happy is being in the midst of a proper movie summer for the first Mm -hmm. time in four or five years for obvious reasons with the Spider-Verse and Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible and even even great smaller films like Past Lives and uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer coming up. That's really what it is, but it seems a little a little basic and vague. So so what I will say is making me happy truly this week, Glenn, is peace in our time. Because we have been fed this false choice, this false binary that we must choose on July 21st, whether we're going to see Barbie first, Greta Gerwig, or Oppenheimer first, Christopher Nolan. And uh, this problem has, has been settled uh, with the announcement this week of the running times of these movies. Greta Gerwig's Barbie runs 114 minutes. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer is 108. 
80 minutes, Glenn. That is 58% more movie by volume. So that part of the question has at least at least been settled. We can we can all relax now. There is a, a victor. This this bloody destructive conflict can cease, and we can all just enjoy this wonderful movie summer that I am I am digging so much. Again, I'm a product of a time when the summer movie season meant something very specific, and I feel like we are back in that time now. Uh, with a little help from Archimedes, perhaps. But that's what's making uh, me happy. That's great. And of course, whenever we're talking about films, it's volume, volume, volume that keeps our <laughs> prices so low. Absolutely, Glenn. What's making me happy this week is the comedian Matteo Lane. He dropped his first hour-long special, Hair Plugs and Heartache, recently on YouTube. It's free. It's great. He's great. I've been a fan of his for years. As far as themes to the special go, he does talk about getting hair replacement surgery, but he also talks about making pasta and roller coasters and Call of Duty and memes. Not so much heartache, frankly, if I'm being honest. But the thing about him is, he's the real thing. He, re- he really is. He has also cracked the code. He has found a way to be a hot young gay comedian with a great body and be self-deprecating in a way that doesn't make you hate his guts. Uh, that is some <laughs> high degree of difficulty stuff there. He doesn't seem thirsty or disingenuous or try hard. He is just real. He's funny. He's really funny. That's Matteo Lane, Hair Plugs and Heartache, which is streaming now for free on YouTube. That is what's making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Kristen Meinzer, Chris Klimek, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. This episode was produced by Mike Katziff and Hafsa Fatima and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music, which you are cracking your whip to right now. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.